Now, if that person doesn't want anybody in the room, lights are dim, everybody's out. They're getting my full attention. I'm not on my phone. I'm not Skyping. Uh, I'm not Instagramming, texting. You know, my attention is on the person singing 20 feet from me. And I believe that they're the most important person in my life at that particular time. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hey, rock stars, it's your host, Lid Shaw, and welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars, the podcast bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Carl Napa. With over 30 gold, platinum, and multi-platinum records as an engineer, mixer, or producer, he has worked with a long list of high-profile artists in rock, hip-hop, R&B, and pop. In his 20-plus year career, Carl is credited as engineer or producer for more than 50 million records sold. He has been a staff engineer at the Hit Factory in New York City, owned and operated Hell's Kitchen Recording and Social Club in New York City for four years, is a voting member of Naris and now also teaches in St. Louis at the Extreme Institute by Nelly. Carl's extensive discography includes many names that you will recognize, like Nelly, Chris Brown, R. Kelly, NSYNC, Limp Biscuit, Ice Cube, NRBQ, Blondie, Moody Blues, John Mellencamp, Mariah Carey, Prince, Wyclef Jean, Run DMC, I like that one, Pet Shop Boys, like that one too, Alan, Alan Parsons, David Bowie, Michael Jackson, Missy Elliott, Madonna, and the Manhattan Transfer, and the list goes on and on. Sorry that was so long, man. I, I pared it down to just, I, I deleted ones that I wanted to say in your list too. <laughs> Please welcome Carl Napa to Recording Studio Rockstars. Carl, my friend, are you ready to rock? I am ready to rock. Thank you. You know, I was thinking about an, an alternative way to ask you about, are you ready? And I was trying to think of like, what's the term for hip hop? It's like, are you ready to bring that beat back? Are you ready to drop the needle? What would we say instead of rock? Uh, in hip hop, I guess you would say, you know, I have no idea. Right, you really got you me go. on that one. <laughs> you finally stopped me. <laughs> All right, man. We're just getting Let's started. You know? All right, cool, man. Well, so um, here's, a, here's a twist on this first question. Uh, when you were... Uh, starting out in recording, we want to get more background on you. But sure. what what did it smell like to you? Tape, tape, nice. Yeah, um, we used four fifty six back then, and I remember distinctly because where I sat in the control room in my first when I first started working in Boston, I sat next to a, a JH twenty four, and I distinctly remember the smell of the analog tape. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I no one's ever. Had, really made me think back to then. And all of those, I guess that sense memory of, of that studio was a studio yeah. called Cortland Recording in, in Hanson, Massachusetts, about, you know, 20 to 30 minutes south of Boston. Nice, and I worked man. for an engineer named Bob St. John, and he had a production company called PDQ Slam Productions with a producer named Anthony Resta. And I used to just hang out. Like in the beginning, um, I was invited down because I was teaching guitar at the same music store as Anthony. He was teaching drums. And Bob just needed some help, you know, someone to set up some microphones and things like that and uh, a runner. And I would constantly bother those guys to see if I could come <laughs> to the studio. 
And I remember the smell of the tape machine, of the actual tape, you know? I love it when you rewind the tape. You know, what's remarkable to me is that I still smell the tape, even though my (laughs) tape reels are probably 10 years old, you know? If I use them for something, you can just smell it when it's rewinding. It's just like the the breeze of oxide. People used to always say this joke. I don't know if they said this when you were in the studio too, but people always say like, I love the smell of oxide in the morning. You know, the quote from uh, Apocalypse Now. (laughs) Um, Well, cool, man. So um, what else? You know, what were some other smells that bring back memories of places you were in terms of um, studios you were starting out in? Do you remember the smell of cleaning the bathroom as you started in the studio? I mean, you know, you know, you know, luckily the position I'm in right now with running the school down here for Nelly, you know, I get to talk to a lot of students, obviously when they start right now, I'm teaching the, our capstone class, you know, their final project. And I get to talk to them on the way out and I tell them the same thing. And it's, it's not so much a smell, but it's just a memory of, of, of just wanting to be in that studio and wanting so bad to, to do whatever I had to do. You want me to clean? No problem. You want me to go rake the leaves outside? No problem. Do you want me to set up the microphones? No problem. You know, I, I tell students a lot of times on my way into work, I'd swing by the local supermarket and, you know, you could take a bag to the bakery and you fill it with donuts and Danish. And I'd look for the cutest and the, the youngest little cashier and I'd walk up to her and she'd be like, what do you got? And I'm like, two donuts. Oh, 50 cents. Thank you. You know, and meanwhile, I have a bag that everything's falling out of, but I'd bring it to the studio and, you know, make a fresh pot of coffee before, you know, producers got there, engineers and talent and artists or what do you want to call them? And there'd be fresh coffee and donuts. And these guys would look at like, look at me like, wait, we're not paying you. And you're showing up with all this stuff. Yeah, I want you to remember me. Customer service. You know, I'm a firm believer. And, and the years at the Hit Factory proved it is that, you know, people want to go into the studio and just feel like, you know, king and queen. Even yeah. if they're like a, a, a local band or a brand new rapper or, you know, just part of a cast. Uh, we used to do a lot of cast albums. You know, who doesn't want to be treated right? And... You know, I learned early on that, you know, that's the service we provide. Um, no matter what I've done or, 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 you know, all those accomplishments that you so nicely said in the beginning, I'm not too big to go grab someone a coffee or water or, you know, do something like that. I, I think that's part of what we do and what we're bringing in. And, and at the end of the day, we want, I want to be invited to the next party. So, you know, I want to make sure that I'm doing right by my clients. Well, just on the off chance that somebody walks in and asks you to grab them a coffee while we're doing this interview, will you do me a favor and tell them to go get themselves a coffee for the next hour? <laughs> <laughs> I've locked the door, so we're good. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm totally with you on that. I remember when I started out, you know, I was at Alex the Great and I, as an assistant or an intern, whatever the session was, I was like, yeah, you guys need the weeds eated, you know, out in front of the studio, no problem. And I took a weed eater out there and I'm tearing down like, you know, four foot high grass and stuff that's all over the place. And I remember distinctly sort of destroying my brand new Doc Martin boots that I was wearing <laughs> while I was out there. But I was like, oh, well, you know, it's worth it. You had uh, to prove that you were, you know, you wanted them to just to realize you're not afraid to work. Yeah. And, you know, also funny enough, the internship that I had over at, at Woodland Studios, I remember there was this token request one day for me to go wash the bathrooms. And it was like, I never got asked to clean the bathrooms again. I think they had a bathroom cleaner. It was just like this rite of passage that I was handed all the bathroom cleaning, go clean the bathrooms, you know? Yeah. I actually clean a lot more bathrooms now that I own the studio than I ever did as an intern. But, you know, hey, it's all good. 
right into your studio. Yeah. So, um, all right. Well, cool. So tell us, you know, what would you like to tell us about? You want to tell us about your time at the Hit Factory? That sounds like that was pretty cool. I've had a couple of other guests who were there probably, you know, 10, 15 years before you were. Yeah. So I, like I said, I started in Boston. The engineer that I did most of my work for, this guy, Bob St. John, his main client was uh, a band called Extreme. And uh, more than words and, and and all those records right after that, Extreme 2, 3, 4. Yeah. And and I would travel with them. And we traveled all over the country. We even went to London to record strings at Abbey Road. And I was a traveling assistant. And we did this long record in Miami at Criteria. And when we finished it, Nuno wanted to go to New York City to record his solo record. So we went to a place called Clinton Recordings in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, and back, this was way before Giuliani. This was 1990 something. And, uh, you know, wh- where, where Clinton was, was not a, was a little bit rough. You know, I was dating a woman, uh, from New Jersey at the time and she would come visit me and not get out of her car. And she'd be like, you got to run out. Like I'm not getting out in this neighborhood. <laughs> and anyway, so we're there for about a week. And I, and I, we went out one night, me and Nuno and some other guys who we went to the, I forget we went to the Roxy or wherever we went. And I turned to him, we're at a light right in front of um, the Beacon Theater. And I go, hey, man, I think I'm going to stay in New York City. And he looked at me, he goes, yeah, that's cool. You know, you have about a week before we start up in Boston after we leave New York. I said, no, I'm going to stay. He looked at me kind of funny thinking, well, how are you going to go to work? I mean, it's a four hour commute every day. I said, no, 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 I'm quitting. I'm not going to work for Bob anymore. Like, I'm going to move on. I'm, you know, I've been assistant long enough. And he was, he was visibly upset. I think he thought we we're all going to grow old together in our roles. And because it was a great team, don't get me wrong. But, yeah. you know, how can you, you, you know, as an assistant, you don't want to assist forever. I mean, I know guys that did it a lot longer than I did, but it just, you know, I wanted to get into the, into the hot seat. You know, I'm from Boston too. I actually grew up in, oh, really? in Concord and, and I saw that you were at, at um, UMass Lowell before yeah, yeah. doing all this stuff. And it's, uh, so it feels like home, feels like home, man. Yeah, your accent is as thick as mine, though. <laughs> and then let's see, what was the other uh, analogy or the other um, connection I was going to make? You talked about going down to Criteria Studios. Yep. So here at my place, I have um, a custom-built MCI that used to be a Criteria C all through the 70s. Really? So, so I have the same, uh, the rock stars, they've already heard this many times, but I have the same board that did Hotel California down there and the Bee Gees records and stuff, so... That's a beautiful studio too. Studio C, right? Is that what it was? Yeah, it was in Studio C. So you were you, you were moving down to New York. Tell us, uh, pick it up from there. Tell us about okay, going so, to New York. And, and the reason I tell the story this way is that I always tell people that doors are always open for us, as a professional or as a you know what we do. It's up to us to to go through that door and keep it open. And Nuno's the one that really opened the door for me at the Hit Factory. He called Troy the Sun and set up a meeting with me to to meet with him. So I get my crappy little resume that I had that I thought was the biggest thing in the world. And I, you know, show up for this interview and he told me very specifically, he goes, you have a meeting tomorrow at 11 o'clock. I'm sorry, 10 o'clock at the Hit Factory. Our session starts at 11. Don't be late. And he was very serious. Like, you know, he was really busting my chops. Uh-huh. But I went there and, you know, we talked to Troy for about a half an hour or so, not even. And, you know, you, there's legendary stories because we traveled a lot and I talked to a lot of people and I knew I wanted to go to New York. So... As I'd pick people's brains, I'd say, well, what studios did you work when you were in there? Oh, I worked at the Hit Factor, but I got fired. Oh, I worked at the Hit Factor, but I got fired. And that's what the common denominator was with most people. And with me, and everybody says, don't go there. And I hate to say it, but when you tell me not to do something, <laughs> You're gonna uh, do I'm, I'm going to do it every single time. Nice. 
And that's what I wanted to do. I really wanted to work that. I wanted to see if I'd get fired. And Troy looks at me at one point in the interview and he goes, so what do you want from me? You have a gig. And I said, well, I want to come work for you. I want to live in New York City. He's like, you're hired. Can you start tomorrow? I'm like, well, I'm in this record till the end of the month. We looked at a calendar. We finished on a Friday. On a Monday, I was my first day at work. Nice, man. And that was just a little bit after they had opened up 421. So they had two studios. They had one between 9th and 10th and a newer building between 10th and 11th. So maybe it was a year or so after they opened up the newer building or a couple of years. So it wasn't that long that that had been opened. And so what's the year now? Uh, 1990, I don't remember, four, five, mid, six, somewhere Mid 90s, right. Okay, mid so mid, mid to early 90s. We had 10 recording studios. We had every console at one point. You know, we had VRs, we had SSLGs, we had a Sony Oxford, we had an, an old 8068. We had an 8014 that used to belong to Bruce Wedeen. Maybe it was an 8028. Nice. Um, with GML automation. I remember that console. And, you know, just so as an assistant, you had to know everything. And I just dove right in, you know, because growing up with Bob and Nuno, like those guys loved the Neve console. Um, so I literally went, you know, head deep into, you know, all these different boards. And um, I think I assisted for maybe six months. And that's when they started throwing me engineering work. And then after that, it just, it, it went pretty quick. My, my change from assisting to engineer was, was very fast. Even though we weren't staff engineers, we were, we were staff engineers. That's cool, man. Tell us, you know, I mean, you listed all these consoles and, and a lot of the rock sure. stars aren't necessarily going to know what they are. Some of them, some of them may, a lot of people might know them only because of plug-in emulations. It, would you be able to list off the top of your head, um, if you were bringing a certain band, not, not, not necessarily the band by, by name, but by style, what sorts of music would go in and want to work on those different consoles when you were doing sessions? You know, any of the old Neves, the 8068, the 8078, anything with an 80, the 80 series, they call them. They just, they have their own sound. You know, it's a very distinct sound. It's, it's a thicker sound, a lot, a lot of mid-range point on it. Um, great for doing rock and roll, country. Uh, anything with a lot of live instruments. Because it almost soaks up the sound, right? Like yeah. the, all the transients coming through a mic just kind of get smoothed out in a nice way. And it's it's a, I don't want to use horrible adjectives, but like when I'm thinking about how, how audio goes through some of those consoles, there's some hocus pocus going on where maybe the low end might not be as punchy and as, as defined, but it's just so smooth, you know? Where if you're doing something on hip hop, you know, when you're looking for this really big, tight bottom, that might be the wrong console for you. Also, because of the limitations of those desks, you know, that Bruce Sweeney console, we had had four sends, but only one knob that you'd have to switch between the sends. So if you were mixing on that desk, you really had to prethink what uh, effect was going to be on a send. You had to use some buses. It had to be very well thought out. Yeah. Where, you know, you get like a, a, a SSL J series console, which was or a K, which was the newest of the, the last of the, the big analog ones. You know, I think you had eight mono sends. You know, yeah, so you it could was have crazy, tons, yeah. tons and tons of, of effects and stuff like that. But a lot of times back then, we just got booked in rooms that were open. So someone would call and they needed a room. And that night you'd be working on an SSL or the next night you'd be working on one of those old Neves or uh, a Neve VR. Um, a lot of people were afraid of the digital console, that Sony Oxford that we had. And, um, I, I just loved it because all of a sudden I could take a snapshot of my mix 
and I can come back in tomorrow. And it was way before Pro Tools, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I shouldn't say way before. It was around the same time. But nobody was mixing in Pro Tools at that point. We're just still using it as a uh, recorder. Yeah. And I could take a snapshot and my, my mix is back. You know, I did this record, a live record called um, uh, Live at 125th Street. It was like a Def Jam Survival of the Illest. That's what it was called. And I literally mixed the whole thing before I printed it. It was, you know, uh, four or five, six major rap artists. And we just took scenes and all the automation was saved. It was the first time I'd, I'd mixed that way where I didn't have to commit until the very end. And it was a, it was a great way to work, especially with a live, uh, a live show. You know, now in Pro Tools, we take it for granted that when I save my session and close it, it's going to come exactly where it was when I, when I finished. Yeah, that's so true. You know, one of the things that I remember doing with analog tape is as you pulled up, you know, you came back to a song to continue doing overdubs or work on it. This would be the, you know, the sixth time, seventh time you'd mix the song since you started the record, because every time you pull up the track, you sort of begin to remember what you were doing last time you mixed it and the faders. And in in some ways, I almost miss that where you get to mix a song a number of times before it's time to mix the song. And in other ways, it's so nice to just have, you know, the session just pull up and be exactly where you left it. Sure. And you you try different things, or you might do a different level or a pan and be like, wow, I really like that. I'm going to, you know, remember that one. Yeah. Uh, and I also think what would happen back then, and I, I was talking to somebody about it recently, is that our mixing skills got better without us thinking about it because we're constantly mixing. Yeah. We're constantly throwing faders up and making really split decisions before a, co- a client came in the door or was sitting next to you waiting for, this, for it to sound great. Yeah. I mean, you were, you were doing things quickly. Yep. Yeah, it was definitely. And you you would get in the habit, hopefully you'd get in the habit of printing rough mixes all along the way. And sure. even that art is a little bit lost in the world of Pro Tools or, you know, working in a DAW because we don't always print a rough mix along the way. You know, we, we might, but a lot of times we might just close it down and come back later. When you had all those old rough mixes, uh, I've saved a record in the past where I went and listened to the rough mix and I realized I had a far better mix going than the one I was trying to do when I was mixing. So sometimes it's nice to remember to just capture snapshots all along the way while you're working on a record. And, you know, that also led to a lot of demoitis back then. Right. Not but always also, a good thing. Uh, I think nowadays it's 10 times worse. You know, I, I do a lot of mixing now and... You know, if I don't get a rough mix from a client, there's definitely the first round of revisions is going to be a lot of them because they've been listening to something for maybe six months where if I'm getting something, you know, fade is at zero, no pans, you know, I'm just doing what I want to do instead of what they're used to doing. Yeah. So, you know, I think demoitis is very strong right now in the industry. It's not a bad thing. It's just, you know, there's no need to reinvent the wheel every time we open up a session. Right. Sometimes if somebody's already got, you know, 80% of a song figured out in the way it should sound toward the mix, and you just want to focus on that last 20% when you're mixing it and not have to start from zero and focus on all 100%. Sure. Well, cool, man. Well, so now um, I like to ask our guests, Carl, to share an inspirational quote on the podcast. Have you got anything that get us kind of psyched up about hitting the studio and making records? I do. It's kind of goofy, but it's from a poem by uh, Arthur O'Shaughnessy. And it's funny because we have a graduation coming up and this is actually how I'm going to start the graduation. 
And it's really just the first two lines. And it's, it's a poem that's been around forever. It's been in movies. Nobody really associates it with him. They associate it with uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Nice. But, um, you know, it's a very, the first, I'm just going to say the first two lines. And it's, you know, we are the music makers and we are the dreamer of dreams. And, you know, at first, when I first heard it, I was like, oh, that's cute. And then the more I think about it, you know, being in the trenches, being behind the scenes, you know, not necessarily being a, an artist, but we are the music makers. We are uh, facilitating someone's dreams, you know. Mm-hmm. A lot of people come to us to, 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 to be able to get from point A to point B with their recordings. You know, they might not be the best recorder, but they have some phenomenal songs and we're facilitating them. And we're, it's, it's our duty to, to do the best that we can and not screw it up. Yeah, so true. I've thought about that many times where I realized that a lot of what I did or have done in the studio is just help other people realize their dreams, Mm -hmm. their musical dreams. So it's an interesting thing to think about, too, because there's a lot of different levels to that. Sometimes uh, people come in and they really clearly know what they're trying to do, and and you facilitate that by um, just letting, you know, helping make it happen. Other times, you might be working with a new artist that has, you know, some sort of clear vision, but there's a lot that they don't really know, and they want you to contribute as much as possible. Talk a little bit about that, the difference between being minimal with your engineering and production and being maximal with it, but how in both cases they might be helping realize somebody's musical dream. Let's just start off by saying that I believe that a song will always tell you what to do. And I know that sounds kind of like uh, hippie-ish and, you know, my head's in the clouds, but I feel as a lot of times producers and sometimes even engineers don't listen to the core of the song. A lot of times our production's wrapped up in trying to make the song what we think it should be, showing off maybe our ego, like, look what I can do, where if we stopped and listened, the production would, would really kind of just fall into place. Uh, now that yeah. being said, there are times when you'll have an artist who has so little experience in the studio that, you know, I hate to say it, that sometimes we are educating them as well as, as long, um, as well as recording them, yeah, showing them the different paths that we can take. And sometimes that takes a little longer because, you know, if I'm giving you 15 examples of what we can do or why we should do it, it's going to take a little longer. Whereas if I'm working with a seasoned artist, like I, um, I had the good fortune of working with Prince at a young age when he came into the studio and I'll tell you this story and it, it kind of relates. There was like, you know, people in the control room were in studio one at the hit factory, which was an orchestral room. So it was enormous. It could fit about a hundred people and the control room literally could fit about 25 or 30 people comfortably. Wow. And he's on the couch with this Parker on with the, 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 the hood over his head and technicians are running around setting up the, we had a 3348 digital tape machine and all these other things, and his bodyguards were there, and I'm sitting there going, what the fuck is going on? Can I swear in a podcast? <laughs> yeah, you can. I rated uh, explicit on iTunes okay. just, just so we're safe. Got you, got you. And all of a sudden, the last guy walks out, the door shuts, and he stands up, throws the thing on, the jacket on the couch. He goes, okay, this is what we're going to do. I want to take this. I want to fly it here. I want you to take this. I want to have that. I want to double this up. I want to bring a microphone in here. I'm going to do the vocals from here. Then we're going to do these other vocals out there. And it was like, holy smokes, just hold on for the ride. Here's someone who knew exactly what they wanted to do, knew how to do it, but wanted me to do it, was, was you know, making sure it was done perfectly to his, his expectations and what he wanted. 
And so you have complete opposite sides of the, the spectrum. You have someone who's done a, a million records and knows exactly what can happen. And then, you know, you have the beginners that, you know, think they might know. So it, it's yeah. a tough one. You know, you, you don't want your ego to get away of anything. And sometimes it, it does with us, but, um, Man, on that print session, you didn't even have time to let your ego get in the way. You probably just had to bust ass and get all that stuff hooked up. And, you know, when it goes well, it's so much fun to do that stuff. When it doesn't go well, it's not much fun at all. No, it's like, you know, setting up this session with Skype. It was not fun. Um, Yes, right. We had rock stars. We had quite a few challenges getting everything to go. Let's let's talk about that for just a sec because it's pretty Mm -hmm. funny. So, um, you know, when we do an interview over Skype like this, we have to make sure that my microphone is going into Skype. And then my guest, Carl, has to do this. And I'm doing this every day, so I've got a setup that I know exactly what to do. But you, unless you're doing it every day, you're having to figure it out and get it going. Um, Before we did this, I think I messaged you on Skype 15 minutes before the interview. And then literally four minutes before my, my Comcast internet just gave out and just quit, just no internet. I'm like, Oh man, come on. Really? No, this, there's only so much you can do. You're at the mercy of the internet gods. Right. And then, um, and then of course, Carl, on your end, we had to just sort through like, okay, well, how are we going to connect the mic in? And, and I'm giving you, um, credit for having one of the best mic sounds we've ever gotten on the podcast. So nicely done there. Thank you. Uh, But uh, the conclusion on my end, Rockstars, is that I used my iPhone in tether mode, in hotspot mode, to do all the internet for the studio computer. And it actually is working better than my fancy internet for the studio. And what's my takeaway? Sorry, Carl, I'm going to let you have a word in edgewise. That's That's What's my takeaway? My takeaway is that I've said this many times, the number one skill set we need to know as engineers is the skill, the, you know, the power of the workaround, because there's always a problem and you just don't give up. That's exactly right. And even with on my end with the Apollo, because I had it in Pro Tools mode to, to mix off of it or mix through it, I should say, uh, we, we didn't know until we went and looked it up that we had to take that off and, and go regular mode. So. Yeah, I was your uh, assistant, right? Uh, I was doing the Googling up. for you. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that really is an important thing. And I know it's sure. we're going on a tangent here, but it's what engineering, it's what making records is all about. It's about not giving up. I mean, I had every reason to just say, Carl, I'm sorry, man, the internet's quit. Uh, looks like we'll have to reschedule. But we sort of persevered and here we are. So let's jump back in, man. What do you say? I agree a thousand percent. And, and I think the most important thing to remember is that to never give up. You know, there's going to be times when there's a deadline and if you give up, you know, the records that we make will never get done because there's always going to be a deadline. There's always going to be a session that went a little bit over and the next guy's waiting in the other room. There's always going to be a mix that needs one more tweak to make a client happy. And you, it might be four in the morning and you're really tired, but you know that if you launch your your Pro Tools rig, you know, and and take that snare down a DB, they're going to be more than happy. You might be your own client. Yes. That's you, absolutely right. You might be like we so often are your own worst critic, making yourself go back and do one more mix. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, but I find when I'm doing stuff, I see a repeated pattern of going back, going back, going back. And then finally I do one tweak and I listen to it. I'm like, okay, that tweak is not better than where I was and I'm done. Yes. Um, you know, I, for me, it's, I like to, to, to listen. So as I'm working, 
I'm always hearing something I need to do, right? We're always making notes and um, check this and do this and do this. And as those notes kind of dwindle away, I'll start to just stop looking at the screen as much and just start to listen and maybe stick on one particular speaker for a while and get used to the sound of it. As I notice, I'm just listening. You know, a, a lot of times I like having a TV on in the control room, just watching a movie with no sound. And I find myself watching the movie and listening to the song and thinking, wow, that's really good. Then I start to freak out, like, did I miss something? Does the, all my plugins working? And then you start to, you know, come back to reality. And I'll listen, instead of bursts listening, I'll listen to the verse and listen to the other verse. I listen to full song. And I listen from beginning to end. And as my notes start to dwindle again, where I'm not making as many notes, that's when I know I'm done. Yeah. It's interesting you talk about notes. I have found that to be one of the, you know, the most effective skills for me for mixing is when I have a notepad, I've usually got a, a clipboard with a piece of paper and a pencil right next to me. Mm-hmm. And I just learn to, ident- when I identify problems in the studio, just write it down. It's like, write it down. You know, I'll, I think the, one of the first places I learned this was taking a mix out to the car to reference it. You kind of don't have any choice, but if you take sure paper with you and pencil and write down all these different things, it's so much easier to come back in to do your remix and just address each element. Instead of trying to look at the whole big picture, you can just go in with your, you know, your microscope goggles on, deal with each element, print it, and then go listen in the car again. Uh, Because when you don't write notes, it can start to feel pretty overwhelming. You start chasing every little problem that you run into. And and, uh, I don't know, you know, it's like, you can go down a real rabbit hole that way. Well, you know what I do too? I don't just write notes of what I don't like. I write notes to future Carl uh, of things that I do like. So let's say I'm listening and the second verse is incredible. The vocal is perfect. It's just fitting with the mix. I'll write to myself, second verse, perfect. You know, don't change. So that when I'm starting to second guess myself, when I go back and, and do whatever I want to do to the first verse and I get to that second verse, I'm like, wait, no. And when I was listening as a listener, that was perfect. Let me go back to that first verse and double check it, go between the two and, and, you know, make sure that future Carl doesn't screw stuff up. Ah, that's cool, man. Notes to future Carl. Is that the name of your book that you haven't written yet? (laughs) It should be. (laughs) Maybe make a note to yourself to write it later. (laughs) That's a good idea. All right. So uh, one of the things I also like to ask guests is to share an important failure. Uh, We kind of did with our Skype thing. Is there, is there any kind of a good anecdote or story you'd like to share about a nightmare in the studio for us? I actually have one that occurred this year. So uh, I've been doing these records with a guy named Floyd. He lives in uh, uh, Massachusetts and um, on the vineyard. And we've made records with uh, a few bands that he's been in. Um, he was in a band called You Scream, I Scream, or still is. And he's also in a band called Violent May. And he called me up and he said, hey, man, I'm doing this new album. Uh, I've mixed it all, but I'm, I'm kind of unhappy with the mixes. Can you uh, check them out for me? And he sends me the mixes and I go, man, these are, these are great. I, you did a fantastic job. He's like, yeah, I just, I'm not feeling it. I go, well, let me take a stab, you know? So it's just a duo. It's a, a, a drummer. He plays drums in this, and his partner sings and plays guitar. Nice. And um, any voting members out there, we are on the ballot this year for best rock album. Just going to throw that little oh, plug cool, in there. Oh, cool, man. That's me. That's me. <laughs> um, but anyways, so he sends me the stuff and I'm in full on 
you know, professional mode. I grab the stuff. I know there's a quick turnaround and I just jump into mixing. And I heard the stuff as polished pop. So, I mean, I'm cleaning up noises, I'm editing stuff. I'm making sure the vocals and the guitars are blended perfectly because I don't have a lot to work with. I have maybe some songs just have like one or two guitar tracks and a vocal, you know, full drum kit and guitar and a vocal. So I'm really like taking advantage of, you know, uh, reverbs and tails and things like that. And I've sent him the first three mixes and I don't hear anything back. And, you know, Floyd's really good about getting back quickly. I'm working on the next three and I send those uh, one at a time and I'm still not hearing anything back. So finally, like, you know, something's up. I call him up and I go, uh, hey, uh, you know, what's up with the mixes? And you get that little, uh, you know, that little pause. And he's like, um, um, you know, well, I've been playing them for people. And all of a sudden I'm starting to get nervous and he goes, you know, I've been thinking and it's just, you know, it's such a different direction than we all heard it as. And yeah. I start fighting for my side. No, no, man, this is pop music. And he's like, no, this is indie rock. Like, like you, you made it too pretty. You made it too good. You made it too pop. And, and, I, and I guess the fail moment is that I didn't listen to the song. I didn't listen to what they were doing. And I assumed that they wanted me to do what I wanted to do. Right. You assumed that they wanted you to change it. Yes. And so I told him, I said, don't fire me, you know, <laughs> give me notes on just one or two songs, uh, actually three songs, and, and let me see what I can do. He gave me the notes and I literally undid all the, the crap that I had done and I mixed it the way they wanted to. And, and he called me up, he goes, dude, this is, this is what we were looking for, um, but I don't want to do this over the phone. So I'm going to come out to St. Louis and sit with you. Is that all right? And I said, sure, like, come on out. So Floyd came out here for like a week or two and we finished the album. And um, it was an incredible experience. And it was humbling at the same time. You know what I mean? Because what happens is you, you, you get comfortable with yourself. You, you, our tools become very um, extensions of our workflow. Mm -hmm. And I was just, I was flying. I was doing something that I, I was very comfortable with. This is the one I had my HD3 rig and all those older plugins. Um, and then Floyd rolls into town and he's mixing on a laptop with all this UAD stuff and uh, Slate Digital, mm -hmm. you know, a lot newer plugins. You know what I mean? I'm still using Compressor 3 from way back when. Nice. I still think it's the greatest compressor of all time, <laughs> but I'm sure a lot of it will argue with me. Uh, we mixed the rest of the album on his laptop. And, I, and when we finished, I'm like, you know what? I'm selling everything. And that's what made me... Uh, take that leap into this Apollo world and, you know, new plugins and a new way of working. Now, don't get me wrong. The first couple of mixes I did on it, I instantly shut it off, turned my back, my old rig back on and, and, and did the mixes uh, until I weaned myself off of it and learned what this new system could do Yeah, and, and what these new plugins sounded like. And now I, I don't think I want to, I, I don't, that's not that I don't think I don't want to go back. I want to keep it where it is right now. And I, I just love the way the sounding Everything's been sounding and just be, you know, rejuvenated, shall we say? Well, it's interesting because I think about the journey through different studios for me. And I want to say that, you know, in the 90s, it was probably the client you were working with was probably showing up with new guitars and guitar pedals and things like that. And that was a discovery for you. Like, oh, wow, that one sounds great. You know, yep. a, new, a new amp. And so then you learn about the amp. But it's not till... 
the 2000s, you know, 2010 into now, it's like the last 10 years that it's been like that. It's like the client can show up for at your studio and they'll have some hot new software or interface. And that's where you learn about this stuff from. Because yeah. as a practitioner, as somebody who's engineering and producing all the time, it's your responsibility to learn at your tools really well, like you were saying before. And that means that on a certain level, you're going to learn that tool and you're going to stick to it for a while because it's kind of what you have to do. So it's funny that you, you, know, you describe something that has really only happened maybe in the last 10 years where your client who's just kind of dabbling in the recording software on a laptop might show up and show you what you need to use next. It's so true. Um, it, it's happened time and time again, you know, especially on like a rough mix that someone will send me. And I look at these plugins like two knobs. It's a piece of shit. Why do I, you know, I use a compressor. I know how to use a limiter. I know how to use an EQ and I'll spend all this time working on a lead vocal. And I listen to the rough mix and I'm like, wow, their vocals sounded better. <laughs> yes. And then I put this plugin on and I'm like, wow, that's a really good plugin. So, you know, my initial, you know, looking down on my nose at it going, ugh, you know, I know how to use, I know how to use real plugins to finding out that, you know, this Renaissance uh, Vox, I don't know if you've ever used that by oh, Waves. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I'll be using it on your voice for this podcast. It's, it's one of my, it's like a, people say, do you have a secret weapon? Yeah. Renaissance Vox, put on your lead vocals, your vocal subs and, and just, you know, dial it in and you're done. Yeah. And people are like, what? And it's, it's, it's just, it's compressing, it's EQing, it's limiting all at once. And it just sounds great. And that's what a lot of things we have to always remember that it's supposed to sound good first. So we don't have to worry about the name, what it looks like, you know, how does it sound, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and that, that's the most important thing. That's why, you know, we do what we do is, is, is the sound, you know, how that has to be the, the number one criteria. So it's sort of like, you know, the takeaway is remember to be flexible and sure. accept that we're probably going to have an opportunity to change our tools out quicker and quicker moving forward as people, you know, as new things are introduced. Yet at the same time, part of what makes you stand out as somebody who's really good at what you do is your ability to trust your ear and compare and contrast and know when something actually does sound better. Because, you know, uh, we were so used to listening to MP3s now. I popped a CD in the car the other day and I was like, whoa, that sounds really good, man. I must have been pretty badass at that. And then I remember, oh yeah, that's right. It's a CD. I'm, I'm so used to listening to my iPhone stream stuff over Bluetooth to my stereo right now that I kind of forgot how good it could sound. Yeah. And, you know, there's always going to be someone faster than you at the computer. So there's always going to be someone better at mixing. There's always going to be a better producer. There's always going to be a better beat maker, a better guitar player, a better drummer. But, you know, what you do is what you do is what makes you special. You know, is it the taste that you have and, you know, the way you mix your drums a certain way with, you know, relationship to vocals? Embrace those type of things and, you know, stop worrying that there's someone better around the corner and just do the best job you can. I told a student the other day, I go, and I show of hands, you know, who wants to get a B in the class? And a couple of guys raised their hand. I said, man, I wish I could do a B-level mix. I go, every mix I have to do has to be A-level, has to be an A, has to be a home run. Because if I don't deliver at that level, my clients won't invite me back to the party. And that's what we have to do. You know, we have to treat everything, you know, the quality has to go into something before it comes out. And that's hands down how I, th I approach everything that I do. Well, is it a good party? It's a great party. It's a great um, party. <laughs> 
Uh, it's not a good party for loved ones and family <laughs> and friends, but, uh, you know, um, it's, it's, it's been a great ride. Oh man. Well, so, all right. So I also like to ask, you know, you kind of gave us a bit of an aha moment when you're talking about this, you know, your, what your client showed up with and accepting that the new technology that you might've thought was beneath you was not only not beneath you, but exactly where you needed to be next. Share with us another aha moment for you in the studio, something where, you know, kind of everything clicked, became a real success moment. I think a great aha moment would be, I don't remember the client. I remember the the person who was playing drums. I remember the situation. It was Elvis, right? Wasn't it the Elvis sessions you did? I wish I were. <laughs> they, did, they did all the remaster, all those number one hits down at the Hit Factory, but I wasn't involved in that. Uh, that would have been a great time because they brought all the old tape machines out and everything for it. Um, it might have been a Dr. John session or something along that line because they were real drums. Nice. And it was in Studio Two, which was in the new Hit Factory building. We called it the uh, the 421 building because that was the address, and it's now condos. And it was the uh, there's a very iconic picture of John Lennon standing in front of this old Neve console with his arms out outreached, mm -hmm. and and uh, his son Sean is sitting at the at the at the console, and it's just it's this beautiful console, and, and they had taken that one and merged it with another one, so it was two 8068 consoles. Uh, I forget how many inputs, 72 or something ridiculous. And they had, just so you know what the rooms were like, it was uh, five booths. I'm sorry, four booths. The first one was all carpeted. The second one was this huge slate room. The third one was a beautiful, beautiful wood room. And the fourth one was a combination of uh, tile and um, carpet and it had a piano in it. So I set the drums up in the, the wood room and a drummer named Sean Pelton was playing. And Sean is the house drummer from Saturday Night Live band and probably one of the most recorded drummers. I mean, fantastic, fantastic session drummer. And so he's just going through the, uh, the drums and I'm a big fan of, of not asking someone just, you know, give me the kick, give me the snare, you know, give me the hi-hat. So a lot of times I'll just tell the drummer, hey, do you mind just playing like a kick snare hat groove? And I'll literally dial in the set you know, based upon how the drum setting, I'll start with the overheads and work my way back to the kick. And it's kind of ass backwards than most people work, but it really saves the drummer from hours of, of brutal kick, yeah. kick, kick, right? Sometimes you have to ask for that, but you know, you try to get as much as you can. And I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm in, in New York a year or something like that. And um, I'm at the hit factory and I'm at this, you know, I'm the greatest engineer in the world. Like, listen to my drums. Like, how, I'm like, look, kind of looking around, you know, wiping my shoulders off. Like, I'm a bad mother sucker. And then all of a sudden reality sets in that aha moment of like, don't fuck this up. You're <laughs> at the hit factory. You know, it's nothing to do with you. You're at this gorgeous console. You got about a million dollars worth of microphones on this, on this drummer. And you have one of the best drummers in the world. Don't screw it up. And I realized that then is that, you know, when we're growing up and we're starting in this business, you know, I tell everybody, go out and do a thousand sessions of the worst people you can find. Not human beings, but musicians. The ones that, you know, they're great guys, but maybe they can't sing in tune. Maybe their instruments are horrible, you know, mm -hmm. and learn how to get sounds and performances out of that. Because when you get into the situation that I was in, let's face it, all I had to do was not screw it up yeah, because the sound is there. The drummer's there. Let's face it. Most musicians 
uh, the sound is in their hands. You know, the way he hits the the skins with the sticks, that's that's what makes him special. A guitar player, the way they push the strings down and, and use their fingers on the pick or, uh, or whatever, that's the sound of that instrument, right? Of that person. And and my aha moment was like, okay, you know, you've had all the training in the world. Don't mess it up. It's so true, man. For me, my experience has always been the, the Bonnaroo Hay Bale Studio where I go down and set up a studio and for four jet. Four days during the festival, we could have up to 40 bands come through my studio every hour, uh, a different band. And it's the same mics, the same setup. It's as quick as you can go. And I would have one, you know, artist maybe, well, I don't want, I'm not going to name any. Of course, we never Mm -hmm. had anybody who was bad. Everybody (laughs) was great. But there would be times where I'd have somebody who's maybe not as good as, as somebody else who's playing and I'm just struggling and I'm like, God, I can't. I, I must be the worst engineer in the world. I can't get this vocal and acoustic guitar to sound good. And then somebody else comes down, sits on the very same microphones, plays, and it's instantly fantastic. Yeah. And then I think, man, I am some hot shit here. How good I am. And then, you know, it's, it's that eye-opening thing where you realize that it's the musicians and what they're sure. delivering. And that's why I say those those thousand sessions, you know, it, it definitely, uh, it, it definitely um, shapes us as engineers and producers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, all right, well, let's keep zipping forward here. Um, I want to dig into some sort of specific questions. Uh, You've had done some great stuff with Nelly in St. Louis, and I wanted to ask if you had any great stories to share about working with him. I do. So I was early on a Pro Tools advocate at the Hit Factory. You know, we had two tape machines in each room, 827. Well, when I got there, there were Studio 800s. And then one day we came in and they were all 827s. And uh, we had 3324s, 3348s, which were the Sony digital multi-track machines. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the occasional Mitsubishi 32-track that never yeah. really worked right. Uh, that, that ate tapes and, and wanted to record whenever it wanted. <laughs> um, but I thought I was hot shit. I was starting to get a lot of work. You know, I had two or three racks of equipment, meaning if I like something, I, I never felt like the uh, the client should have to rent it and I'd try to find something and buy it. Now, obviously it was in my reach. Um, you know, I used to travel with a bunch of delays and, you know, processing gear and preamps and stuff like that and my own speakers. Nice. And all of a sudden there's these other couple of guys at the studio getting more work than me or just as much. And they're just carting around a computer. And I'm like, what the hell's going on with this? And one guy was using um, Vision, Studio Vision, way back when. Opcode. Yeah, we're going back, you know, and flying things around with uh, uh, a Tascam 33. Remember that? Not 33. What's it called? Yeah, the little DAT tape or not DAT tape. Yeah, the DA88 or something like that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, And then the other dude was using Pro Tools. And I just saw the writing on the wall, like the stuff that these two can do with this, this equipment is just fantastic. So I jumped in, I jumped in head first. Uh, I did as much pro tools editing and, um, um, stuff like that for other people that I, as I did engineering back then, it just, they kept giving you more and more money to do it. And why would I say no? Uh, but anyway, so fast forward all these years later and I'm working with Nelly and I meet him through New York and his A&R guy, Kevin Law and, they start inviting me to more and more sessions and they call me up and they say, we're going to go to LA and make uh, Nelly's next record. Can you come? Sure. About three months. No problem. And I go, well, where are we working? And he goes, well, we don't know yet. We're going to go and uh, spend a couple of days 
um, looking at studios. Can you come with us? Sure, I can come out early. So we'd walk into like the village and I'd be like, yeah. oh my God, look at this room. It's incredible. Look at all the equipment. Oh, look at the mic list. And we'd do a session or two and Nelly'd be like, yeah, no, I'm not really feeling it. <laughs> and then we'd go to uh, the record plant and then we'd go to Sunset, uh, Sunset Sound Studios, which was at the bottom of a hotel. And we must've went to about five or six or seven different studios. And everyone was like, yeah, nah. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I want to work here so bad. Um, and so I pull him and uh, his, his uh, A&R guy aside and I said, well, I kind of cheated before we came out. I kind of figured that, you know, he, he, he really wanted to write this record as he went and, you know, uh, we might run into a situation like this. So I said, I, I kind of went and, and got prices before we left. Prices? What do you mean? I said, well, I priced out a, a set of speakers, a microphone, a, um, a, a mic pre, you know, just a basic setup. You know, we had a console. It was like a uh, the Digidesign C Control 24. No, not mm -hmm. Control 24. Pro Control. Yeah. No, Control 24. The one that had that swoop in it. And um, I said, well, it's about, at the time, maybe 40 grand, 30 grand worth of stuff. You know, it was very bare bones, you know, but it was, you know, you still Pro Tools HT3 was expensive and um, drives and stuff like that. Yeah. And I said, well, if we buy all this stuff and the we is you, we work on the record out here and then I go home and I'll set it up for you in your house and you have your own studio. And they look at me and they're like, well, can we get the quality that you would get in the studio? Uh, absolutely. Well, how, how do you know that? I said, well, I have a rig that I cart around the Northeast uh, to every home studio or not even a home studio, but like a barn, you know, an office space that someone converted, a uh, bedroom, garage, and I'd make these records if I wasn't on a, a, a Nelly session or a, a, a big client session, right? Out of the hit factory, I'd be traveling. And, you know, because a lot of when you're starting out, your clients can't afford those big, beautiful studios. Yeah, it's fun to do too. Oh, so much fun. And I had a, a rig where I had stands, I had cables, I had bikes, you know, you know, I had the whole nine. Yeah. But instead of shipping my stuff, I said, this is a cool way to do it. And then you have your studio. And he had his own record label. So it, it was a no brainer. So then we spent four or five days finding a mansion to live in while to set up the studio. And we eventually found a beautiful place in the hills. Yeah. And if you look at a budget, it was so much cheaper than renting a studio for three months, um, hotel rooms for three months and um, per diem and stuff like that. 99% uh, of the people stayed in the house. Me and the A&R guy stayed in the hotel. There wasn't enough bedrooms for all of us. And we recorded what became Sweat and Suit. So it was a double record that came out on the same day and it went number one and number two on Billboard. And it's the second time in history that happened. The first time was Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusion, mm -hmm. one and two. And the second time was Nelly, um, Sweat and Suit. And it was recorded, majority of it, in a, in a, in a, a bedroom. You know? wow. And that was before you could go and buy you know, the traps in the back of Mix Magazine or uh, Tape Op and stuff like that. You know, we had packing blankets, you know, nailed to the wall. We had, um, you know, his his closet is where I set up the vocal booth. And I just put his clothes in there to capture all the sound and put a little rug down. And it deadened it enough. And when he was singing, I'd have to run around this mansion telling everybody to shut up. And I remember <laughs> the first time the, the kitchen was right below the booth or the, the, the bedroom. And I run into the kitchen. These guys are playing dominoes. And I'm like, shut up, you know. And I look up. <laughs> 
and it's all the bodyguards and it's like four guys that are about between the four of them about 2,000 pounds. Oh my God. And I go, uh, do you guys mind keeping it down? They start laughing. And, uh, but it was, it was a great experience. And, and it was like when we first realized that, well, not me, but you know, I would say a, an artist at his level was that, man, I don't have to go in you know, the good, bad or indifferent, but I don't have to go into a, a professional recording studio to make a record that will sell a million plus copies, you know? Nice, man. So he's sitting there singing in the closet, um, getting a good sound, surrounded by all these hanging parkas and everything. And then he beckons you over to the door and tells you it's getting hot in here. <laughs> Is that where uh, that came from? <laughs> I should have known that was coming. <laughs> all right, cool. Yeah, Sorry about it was, that. It was, it, no, it's quite all right. You it's can also he, when, you know, when with he me, you can hear the work. wheels turning. You can yeah, actually yeah, hear yeah. me like saving my punchline to try and put it in there. But, yeah. <laughs> all right, man. So that's great. I love hearing that story. And I completely understand that. And I'm, of course, now it's like people are like, what do you mean? Like everybody can record in their work. bedroom, you know? Yeah. But, but I, think I also the, think that we grew up in studios, so we knew what it was supposed to sound like. Yeah. So chasing that sound outside of a studio in the early days, you know, we were kind of in the wild, wild west with that. There was no one. I mean, there was always somebody doing it. Let's be honest. Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, at that level, you know, I felt like I was a trailblazer. Well, so now what are some of the takeaways that rock stars need to know as far as, you know, okay, so everybody's got you can get speakers, no problem. You can get a small, a simple studio going up for a control room. You can have a laptop, you can have a mic, an interface, and record out of home. But what are the things that people need to remember as far as what makes the difference between recording at home and making a record that could be released at number one and two versus recording at home and making something that people skip over on SoundCloud? Oh, it's the, the main thing are good songs. You know what I mean? There's a million people out there making a million records every day and people say, oh, it's so impossible to be heard. No, it's not. You just have to have good songs, you know? And if your writing is not ready to be in the studio, then keep writing, you know, perfect your craft. Maybe read a book about songwriting or sit down with uh, five of your artists' records and, and do some woodshedding on, you know, what they're doing to make it so great. And I don't care if that's, that could be your mixing. If your mixing isn't at the level you want it to be, woodshed it. Sit down with, with 10 or 12 songs and pick them apart and see if you can duplicate that with what you're doing. And until you start doing that, you're just going to be spinning your wheels. So, um, so can I go somewhere to get good songs? Do they have an app for that? Or can I just go to the section of Walmart and just go pick some up? <laughs> sure. You know, that, uh, the, the, you, there is definitely people that will great, write you great songs. It's going to cost you. But um, I think what it is, is just perfecting your craft. Yeah. Working yeah. You know, working a little harder. You know, everybody wants to be a rock star, but who really wants to do the work? A uh, funny thing is that when I first got to St. Louis, I sat down with a couple of engineers who worked out here and they were like, oh, I wish I had your discography. I wish I worked with the people you worked with. You, know, you can. What do you mean? I go, well, you know, you guys like to work during the day, you know, sessions 11 to 7, whatever. I go, the fun is at night. Let's be honest, the guys that I want to work with want to start at 11 o'clock at night, midnight, you know, seven at 10 at night. You know, that's when the fun is at. No, these guys come out of the woodwork, um, you know, and you want to be able to take every session that comes at you. You know, there is no, well, I'm going home for dinner. I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to go watch the blues play or the hockey game or the baseball game. You know, my old days and I still do it to this day, which my girlfriend doesn't like particularly is when the phone rings, can you do a session? Yep. 
Yeah. Well, you don't know. Do you, don't, you don't know what the session is. I can do it though. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I know what it. Is. I know what you mean about that balancing the two things, and it is tricky. And I want to be there, even despite my own sort of patting myself on the back for being proud of finding some kind of work-life balance. At the same time, I always am thinking, man, I kind of want to just work a late night session, you know? Last time I did one, it was our, the most brilliant stuff we recorded was the stuff that was happening at two in the morning. Yeah, when the phone isn't ringing and no one's worried about it. Yeah. Well, so now um, you have built some studios. You, know, you talk about going in and setting up Nelly's studio. You also, I think, built a studio, um, sort of a, a much larger scale in St. Louis. Can you tell us um, some important things to think about when it's time to design, build, and operate a recording studio? Absolutely. I've had the good fortune of being involved in maybe five or six different studios, uh, a lot of them being my own production rooms. I'm right about to go into a venture right now with a room uh, in mid-December. But uh, the biggest one I've ever built is the one we have here at the Extreme Institute. And I was lucky enough to be able to hire one of my favorite acoustician slash designers, a guy named Francis Manzella, FM Designs out of New York City. And when they asked me, like, who, you know, who, who could we get to help build a studio? You know, obviously the cockiness in me is, is like, I don't need anybody. I can do it. <laughs> but I know that I can't do it. You know what I mean? Because there are certain things in a studio that unless you are good at it, it's going to come out messed up. The HVAC system and the electrical system. Yeah. And um, entryways, doors, windows, how, how, you know, making sure that um, anywhere some sound can squeeze out of, you know, because if you think about it, a studio is nothing but a boat. And instead of the boat being on water, we're keeping, we're keeping the water, which is sound, out mm -hmm. or in, depending on how you're looking at it. Or right? of a submarine almost. Right, exactly. So Francis was, uh, kept coming to my, my mind because when we, me and Nelly worked in Vegas, we worked at Studio at the Palms and he did all those rooms. And it was the first time that I've, mixing something, right? And I'm on the big speakers going, man, everything sounds really good. I'm glad I, because I bring my pro acts wherever I go. I go, wow, my speakers sound great. And I realize I'm on the big speakers and I start to listen. I'm like, wow, these are real even. These are real, like I could actually work off of the mains, you know, the first time that I, I experienced that like hi-fi-esque, you know, large speaker. Um, I worked at the studio in Rhode Island called uh, Sound Station 7 and Francis had done the, the remodel of the control room mm -hmm. and it was an incredible control room. Um, Chris Geringer in New York City, one of my friends, uh, longtime friend and mastering engineer that I use a lot, his studio, his mastering studio at Sterling was done by Francis and I used to love sneaking away up there and, you know, bringing a master up there to record and not record, but, you know, listen to him master. And I always realized that like, these rooms were incredible. Uh, I worked at the studio in Lake Apacon called um, The Barbershop, and he had done that studio too. It was like a no-brainer for me to bring him in. And what he does is he obviously knows how to record from his days at Skyline, but he knows how to design, and he just pulls the two together. Like the sight lines are great. The, the acoustics are just phenomenal. You know what I mean? One well, second. so, you know, I think of Sterling. That's the collection of mastering studios in beautiful location 
on the west side of Manhattan. Yep. And, and, you know, with all those, you have to have all these rooms that are isolated from each other where you can crank it up and get the deepest lows and everything. And so True. if he did Without- that, he must have to know a lot about isolating sound. Well, where we put the studio in the school was a building that Nellie had. And it's uh, in an old part of St. Louis called The Landing. We're like two blocks away from the arch. But it's literally 50 feet away from one of the major thoroughfares. And on one side, it's uh, a bridge that goes to Illinois. And on the other side, it's another bridge that goes to Illinois. And then The Landing is kind of a lot of bars and restaurants that people hang out in. So, you know, we had to have that isolation. And I learned a ton from him about HVAC systems, electrical systems, and just the construction, how to incorporate the multiple layers of drywall and sheetrock and what to look for. Uh, We had six months to make a studio that would take 18 months to record. You know, a lot of times Fran would call up and be like, hey, can I change when you get to, you know, plan page 15, you know, number 72, this little way these two things come together. I want to change that. Sorry, I can't do that. He's like, it's not going to cost you anything. I just want to change it. I go, Fran, it's not about costing us anything. That, that wall's been closed for, you know, three days now. Impossible. How did you guys do it? And we literally had two crews working. We had a, I'd show up at six in the morning and get the morning crew good off on the ground, talk to the, um, the super and this is what we're going to go for today. And then I'd go to the office and start writing curriculum, designing the equipment that's going to be in there, what we're going to do, stuff like that, deal with uh, all the the running of a company, right? Mm-hmm. Um, putting a school together from the ground up. And then at seven o'clock or eight o'clock, I'd come over here with my boots and my my hammer and I'd suit up and I'd work with the night crew till about, you know, 12, one, two in the morning. And we were going so fast that, you know, everybody was like, and I told everybody from day one, like, this is how we're going to make it. It's going to be perfect. Uh, and if you guys screw up, I'm going to come over here and destroy what you've screwed up and you're going to have to rebuild it. (laughs) And they didn't believe me. And the first day that some dude took his, like, uh, um, his saw that cuts, you know, drywall and they've got to put in a, a wire for the sprinkler or the smoke detector, right? Or the fire alarm. And he just cut a hole and, and sliped it over there and put some, right. some compound over it. And I'm like, look at this motherfucker. <laughs> so he, that, that crew went home and I circled it with my big Sharpie and I took my hammer and smashed it to bits. And I waited in the morning. I came back in the morning and uh, everybody's screaming and yelling by the time I got there. And I told them, I said, guys, you don't understand. Once this mistake gets covered up, we're never going to know it until the outside air, outside sound is coming through there. And then it's too late to fix it. Yeah. So they, they realized that I wasn't kidding around. But, um, you know, to take that on a home level, unless you're doing all those things, the floating floors, the... Um, the multiple uh, levels of sheetrock and plywood and all these things and all the double walls. And unless you're doing all of that stuff, there's no need to, to go crazy when you're at home. When you're at home, you're looking for, look, we're never going to make a completely isolated studio. It's just too expensive. Who can afford that? Right. And if you can afford it, you can't justify the bill that you're going to have to charge your client for it. So what we do is do the things that are necessary to make yourself work. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? If you need a nice room, well, let's look at our first reflections. How are your sidewalls doing? How is your ceiling doing? Do we need to build, you know, a nice little um, cloud and some nice traps on the side? Let's start there, 
get the sound the way we want it. Listen to some records once you do that stuff. Yeah, now you're talking you know? about the monitors, the control room in your listening yep. area, right? Yep, yep. And then when it comes to the live room, you know, what are we looking for? Are we just doing vocals? Well, then we can build a smaller booth or we can make some gobos. Is it, There was a great thing. I tell everybody this. Um, uh, was it Pro Tools Expert? The uh, thing you see on Facebook all the mm -hmm. time? Mm-hmm. Some dude made uh, these unbelievable traps out of some Ikea bookcases. Nice. You know, and for like 65, 70, 80 bucks, 100 bucks, like, and, and you couldn't tell that they were some bookcase, you know? And they were bass traps? Uh, mid, mid frequency. So, you know, they're more like uh, gobos for, uh, so you could build like four of them and put them around your microphone and, and it would cut out all the reflections and stuff like that. I yeah, think a cool. lot of people get caught up on these little shells that go around a microphone now. Right. Thinking that that's the beginning and end all. But man, I, I, who wants to sing looking at that? Like you're singing into a corner that you're a dunce, you know? <laughs> um, Didn't make, that, make, did, wasn't that how uh, Blair Witch Project ended, I think? <laughs> <laughs> but think about it. At the end of the day, the studio is a magical experience. Right. I'm going back to my hippiness. Yeah. You know, I want to inspire the guys that are singing. I want to inspire the musicians singing into a, 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 you know, a round reflector is not inspiring to me being in a, in a bigger room, but maybe I can control those acoustics around that singer. So they have this sense of like, this is my space, you know, I'm my little workshop. And, uh, and that's what I try to do now with my setups. Well, that's cool, man. Well, hey, we're, we're about to take a break and we'll, we'll hit the jam session here. Uh, but before we do, let me ask you this question, because you've been teaching at the Extreme Institute. I, I know you're teaching uh, production, mixing, all that. What's yep. one of the most common frustrations that people have when it comes to hip-hop production, mixing, and mastering? That they can't get their low end right. So, so, so what do we do to get our low end right? How do we get our bass and our kick to go together, especially in hip hop where it's like all about low end? Well, what's funny is, you know, I came from rock and roll and I loved hip hop. I get to New York, I did a lot of hip hop and uh, I keep going back to rock and roll and pop and stuff like that. But leaving rock to, to, to do a lot of hip hop taught me about low end. And so now when I went, go back to those other genres, I can fill that in. And a lot of guys are, are, are bass shy, I should say. Mm hmm and I think the most important thing to think about is, is, is how to marry those instruments that are all doing the same thing. You have an 808, you have a, a low kick, you have a bass that is sometimes subharmonic frequencies. And they're all fighting for this, you know, frequency from 30, 60, or, you know, 30, 50 hertz to, you know, 220, maybe a little higher. Um, and you can't just add it to everything and, and hopefully the best will push, you know. You have to start to maybe take a little out of the bass and add it to the kick. So those start to marry. They start to get, I guess, put together, put together easier. Mm -hmm. And then a friend of mine, Mark Donio, a mastering engineer out of New York City, does a, I'm sorry, Boston, does a lot of uh, classical recording too. He makes fun of me because I, I use more than two microphones to record anything. <laughs> well, um, hey, no, if he's got a deca tree, so is he. <laughs> I know, right? They don't like to talk about that. They just like to say they use two. Um, he started to talk about aligning my low frequencies, meaning, you know, a sound wave flipped out of phase is going to cancel out, right? But two sound waves or two low end frequencies that are just off a little and maybe not pushing that speaker at the same time, create that little bit of, um, not dissonance, but the speaker's not working efficiently. Right. And it's, it's like a cone filtering. Other, right. 
So I started to, you know, find out, you know, what's my main low end instrument? Okay, it's the 808. So let me kind of adjust things around that. Now, I'm not talking huge timing things. I'm just saying, you know, sample level. And all of a sudden, I noticed my whole low end just comes into focus because now my speakers are more efficient and they're, they're pushing when they're supposed to push instead of pushing and pulling at the same time. And then I can start to take frequencies out of a kick to add to a bass or take frequencies out of a bass to add to a kick. So those frequencies, sorry, those instruments start to blend better. And then all of a sudden you have a nice tight low end. Interesting. So you're so it's like you start with your main low end instrument, like the 808, and then you begin to, that's your benchmark, mm -hmm. it's your reference point. And then you begin to add those other things to it and see how it's affecting that 808 sound, if it's killing it or if it's helping it. Sure. And so and it you, might not be there. It might, maybe it's, the, it's a kick drum. It could be, it's always different, mm -hmm. but there has to be something, you know, it's whatever the principle is in the mix. Yeah. And then when you talk about sample level, you're talking about delaying things by samples, moving them around. So it's a little bit later, it's a little bit earlier, but literally on the sample level, not even whole milliseconds. Mil uh, not even milliseconds, samples. Wow. Because we start to get into milliseconds, then we're changing um, the feel of the song, right? Yeah. But at the sample level, two, three, four, five, 10, 15 samples, you know, maybe a little more than that, but, you know, nothing too drastic. And the principle, if the kick is the real powerful part of the low end, then everything else can, can move to that. You know, uh, you know sometimes, uh, you know, the way a bass is sequenced or played, it's going to be a kind of bit off and push and pull in. But that push and pull is enough to, to, to make my low end kind of vibrate instead of push at the same time. That's great, man. Well, that's cool. I'm, a, I'm glad I asked you about that. And that's a great tip. So thank you for that. No well, we'll take a break now and come back for the jam session. Rockstars, before we go, I want to remind you that you can get show notes to everything we're talking about. If you go to rsrockstars.com and just search for Carl Napa, and it'll take you right to this blog post. If you're listening to the podcast on your iPhone or your other podcast listening device, you should be able to just click through with your finger on the show notes, and there should be a link you can just press with your finger. Don't have to do any fancy typing or any fancy anything, but it'll take you right to the stuff we're talking about. So we'll see you guys in just a moment for the jam session. Hey everybody, it's Lid Shaw, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks, and you get downloadable multi tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444, and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444. 
888-444-4444, or you can go directly to MixMasterBundle.com, enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, rock stars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. Rockstars, welcome back for the jam session. My guest today is Carl Napa joining us from St. Louis. And Carl, are you ready to jam? I am. All right, dude. When you got started out in recording, what was one of the things that was holding you back? Time. The time that I could uh, allocate to those early days, because, you know, I still had a, to work and make a living and, and do stuff like that. Uh, I was going to school at the same time as well. And time is what held me back. And I eventually quit everything just to do what I love doing. Right. So you needed to get in your 10,000 hours to mastery, but you just couldn't really go go in with both feet at first. Yeah, there was too many other things pulling me in other directions. I just had to give up on all that stuff. And so eventually you just quit everything else. And that was how you got the time? Everything. Quit college. (laughs) uh, Quit uh, working for my family's business. They were electricians. I remember the day that I threw my boots and then my tools in the truck and my boots in the garbage and told them all, you know, I love you guys, but see ya. Put my um, boots in the garbage. I love it. <laughs> and so, all right. So now we've got, you know, some listeners that are maybe at a, a stage in their life where they're ready to jump in with both feet. Um, they might be, you know, uh, late teens ready to jump in with both feet to learn this stuff. Uh, we also have listeners who are in, you know, closer to 50 and above who are ready to jump in with both feet because they've just been doing something else for a while and they're ready to do it now. What about for people who love doing this, but they're not going to, you know, work all night long? What advice do you have for them about sort of uh, getting their skills together and, and being able to get good at their craft? Practice. The, the best thing you can do is practice. If you mix a song for a client, mix it 10 times. You know what I mean? Or if you're, if you're only, if you're charging by the hour, you know, and you know, you have a decent mix at the end of the, the money, when the money runs out, put an extra double the time on your own to get better. Hmm. Try some different stuff. Uh, that's the only way to get better. It's, you know, I can go out. I love to buy guitars. Uh, and I am not the world's best guitar player. I'm probably like probably four from the worst. Well, that's cool. Cause I mean, obviously, cause I am so, <laughs> but they look great on the wall, you know what I mean? But unless you're practicing every day, you're never going to get better at them. And I believe recording and producing is the same way. Producing or producing? Producing. 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 Yeah, producing. No, but you have to practice, you know? And a lot of times if, if I'm on a session or, or not on a session for a while, I'll jump in my room and practice for a minute. Oh, man, my editing chops a little off. I'll run through some exercises and, you know, maybe... Um, not have my assistant clean up my next mix project and I'll go through it and get all uh, the fades right and all this stuff just to have that skill set back up because I know I'm coming in on some recording sessions. Uh, and, and a guy who's starting out, just practice. Get your friends to record. Uh, you can't find anybody, you have any friends that record, you know, go to a local show and talk to people. Hey, I have a studio. Um, don't give anything away for free because when, when free is involved, people don't take it serious. Yeah. But 10 bucks an hour, five bucks an hour, something. You know, so at least there's a value there. There's an exchange of, uh, of something. You're giving them some intellectual property that's been recorded and they're giving you some experience. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, it reminds me of a, um, a spoof I did when I was in school 
for recording and I came back up and I was actually in St. Louis. I was mixing a record with uh, my band from there and we're sitting at this little mixer and they're all sitting around me and I'm the guy who, you know, supposedly knows what's going on. And I've like, you know, lean mattresses up on the wall to treat the room <laughs> for my mixing. Um, and so I'm sitting there and I put my fingers on all, all the faders on the console. And I told them, I was like, yeah, man, we're, we're doing some cool stuff at school. You know, we actually have to do these, these exercises. Um, so we've been doing um, finger fader mixing exercises. And I started like extending faders one finger at a time, like I was doing some sort of yoga <laughs> exercise. <laughs> I had them going for a minute. They're like, wow. No, wow, I, that's, just, that's a good one. Yeah, that's awesome. Or maybe I thought they did, and they, they were like, "Lidge, you are so full of shit." <laughs> and now, how about sharing with us some of the best advice you received? To uh, to listen to the song, I had a producer at, a, at an early age, um, always tell me to listen, to don't get in the way of of what's supposed to be happening. And at first, I thought it was hocus pocus. You know what I mean? Like this guy is a hippie. And then when I got into New York and I, I was lucky enough to, to, to sit behind um, the Phil Ramones and the Reef Martins and the, even the Mutt Langs and watch them produce a song. And, you know, on playback, they, they were eagerly listening to what was coming out of the speakers to know what to do next. Yeah. And we have to listen. Well, do, do they look different when they listen? Did they do, were they just listening? Was there anything really like? Arif Martin was the coolest person I've ever met in my life. Hands down. Um, he showed up every day in a three-piece suit, sat in front of the Neve, always to the right, on the right-hand side of the producer's section, uh, or the center section, I should say. And he'd, we'd always have delivered, you know, four or five newspapers and they'd just sit in front on the desk and he'd cross his legs and read his newspapers and look up occasionally going, oh, that was out of tune. Um, you know, try the A flat instead of the A. Or, you know, do this and do that. And, and, and it seemed to be not paying attention, but he was paying attention more eagerly because he was taking one of his senses out of the equation. It's like when I talked about, you know, listening to your mix, you know, stop looking at the screen. Just listen as a listener, you know, to, 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 to take yourself out of the mix and, and become a listener. Yeah. And it was amazing watching him do that. Yeah. I remember meeting an engineer who told me the same thing. He said he liked to have the TV on while he's mixing. Oh, it's amazing. Well, so now um, how about sharing a favorite or, or not necessarily a favorite, but just a recording tip hack or secret sauce, something that our rock stars could use this very day on a session in their studio? Sure. And it's a, it's a tip that I stole from my friend, Tony. Um, I, I alluded to him earlier, Tony Black. We kind of grew up at the Hit Factory together. Uh, it's to have a template. And I'll open up a new session. Let's just say I'm doing some vocals to a two-track. So I import my two-track into a session, check my disc allocation, and then import my template. My template consists of a work track that my lead vocal is going to be recorded on, or any vocal, about 10 lead vocal tracks, already subgrouped to a, a, a lead master, and then about... 36 or 42, I forget the exact number of uh, background vocal tracks, all grouped out into fours, panned out, kind of leveled out, and effects on them and everything. So as a singer is singing, let's say they want to do a big background stack of, of 30 tracks of vocals. I go to my work track, I name it the singer's name, we start recording. As soon as they sing the first part, I hold down control, grab the, um, the waveform, you know, the little the clip, drag it down. 
And instantly, I'm always recording. That track is always on input and always in record. Even when I'm playing back, if the singer sings something interesting, I drop into record. I'm on, I'm on, uh, Oh, punch uh, mode. You mean? Yeah. Right. So I'm always recording. If I see something I like, I hit record. I just back it up, you know, pull out with my cutter tool. And then they say, Oh, I wish I knew which harmony I sang. Oh, you mean like this? Oh, you have it? Yeah, of course I have it. So it's a very productive way, a very quick way. And the artist is never waiting for you. They're never waiting. Say, oh, give me another track. Okay, hold on a second. Uh, Shift Apple and new track, uh, audio track, uh, uh, input seven, output two. Oh, was it output two? Output, you know what I mean? That's right, just right. so much wasted time. Literally, the, the, if you can take a breath, I'm ready to record again. Um, and I believe that takes all of the, the waiting and the slowing down of a session out. And then, because I produce and record a lot at the same time, uh, I don't have to think about the technical side as much as just watching my compressor, make sure I'm not bumping it too much, uh, and then listening to make sure that, you know, uh, am I overloading my preamp? You know, how does my levels look? So I'm looking at the basic side of engineering and concentrating more on the creative side of, you know, getting through these vocals. I don't want to say quickly, but efficiently. No, at the speed at which the singer's trying to sing the damn things. Yep. <laughs> yep, and I don't go back too far. A couple of bars, you know, I learned that early age. You know, if I go back, you know, half of the verse to sing, a oh man, the guy's going to be sleeping by the time I get there. Yeah, yeah. So rock stars, if you're a musician, put yourself on the other side of the glass. Know what it's like to sing over something. Know what it's like to play guitar and trust what you think about it so that when you go back to the engineering seat, you are remembering that these things are important for the other person that you're recording. And if you aren't a musician, what advice do you have for somebody who's not a musician? They can't really experience that? Just just sort of take notes or, or maybe ask some musicians what, what they really like, what's what's the best session for them? Let me see if I get this question right. What advice would be for a non-musician who's recording and producing? Yeah, exactly. So if they're not a musician and they don't know what it's like to sing on the mic, how do they learn what the singer really needs? Just take notes from you, I guess, right? Just to be efficient. You know, don't go back too far. Uh, a rule of thumb is a couple of bars. Um, don't talk on the talk back a lot. Well, I, if funny enough, I push it a lot. I know that singers are in that room all alone and they look in that window when we're all laughing. Now I might've just told the most funniest joke in the world, which I, I believe I did. Uh, <laughs> they don't see it that way. They just think that we're laughing at them singing. Yeah. So a lot of times I have that talk back down and so that they're part of the conversation. Now, yeah, if that yeah. person doesn't want anybody in the room, lights are dim, everybody's out. And, you know, they're getting my full attention. I'm not on my phone. I'm not Skyping. Uh, I'm not uh, Instagramming, texting. You know, my attention is on the person singing 20 feet from me. And I believe that they're the most important person in my life at that particular time. Yeah, you know, it's good advice. In fact, I would say rock stars, it's likely that you, like me, are getting a little bit sick of your phone these days and use the studio session as an opportunity to finally just turn it off for, you know, and have focus time and not be distracted by it. Yep. So, all right, how about this one? Um, a favorite hardware tool, something physical that you really like to have around on a session always seems to make your sessions better. A favorite hardware tool, obviously, is my speakers. Can't live without them. Yeah. I've tried to replace them for the past 10 years. Uh, Pro, Pro X Studio 100s, just a, it's it's a great speaker, but it's also something that I, I've used for 15 years that maybe plus that you know 
I just know, I know what they're doing just by looking at them. I could shut the amp off. Well, I guess you'd still hear it. <laughs> but like, if I'm seeing a lot of like uh, driver movement, I know the low end is off. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, I just bought some new speakers, some some Duntex, and they're these like 200 pound, six foot two monsters. And they just, they're incredible. So, you know, it's always time. I'm always, you know, maybe I've been called a, a collector or a hoarder or, you know, whatever, but I'm a big firm believer in, in putting back into your craft. You know, so I'm not afraid to buy something. I'm not afraid to put a little bit of money back into my company, which, which is myself. So, you know, I, I probably invested a little bit more money than I wanted to. It was by my mortgage payment this month. <laughs> and uh, But it's just a whole new listening experience. It's a beautiful, um, real hi-fi experience. So, yeah, on the, on the hardware side, it's definitely uh, the listening environment. Because without that environment, you know, I'm just second-guessing myself. Yeah, so I guess the takeaway Rockstars is when you do find a favorite pair of speakers, you know, stick to them. And they don't have to be these stupid, stupid, stupidly priced speakers too. You know, a friend of mine calls it the, the cork sniffers, you know, the guys that are out there on uh, the, uh, in the magazine saying, oh, this is the latest, greatest. And, oh, look at this and look at that, man. Um, I walked into a studio the other day and the dude had a pair of KRKs, like entry level, mid-level models that weren't expensive and they sounded awesome. Now, his room was decently treated, but it's like, I tell people like, buy what you can afford and grow into them and then grow out of them at the same time. Like you, you're going to find a pair of speakers and if you use them enough and listen to them enough, you'll know the, the, the pros and cons of each speakers. Like I, I, so I bought those huge ones the other day and at the same time I found a pair of old, uh, Optimus sevens, mm-hmm. the old Radio Shack speakers oh, yeah. and they sound awesome but they were 15 bucks and you know, you just never know. It's, it shouldn't be a price range. It should be, you should listen to everything. Yeah. It's about and, and, what, what works and what's useful. Yep. Well, so now how about fair, uh, sharing a software tool that people should know about? Maybe it's a favorite one. Maybe it's just something recently you've been really digging. Um, so le- recently I switched over, you know, to this um, whole virtual pro tools more uh, away from my HD3 rig, you know, I'm um, oh, right, native, 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 right, native right. sorry, but with the Apollo. So I've been, I've been really messing around with their plugins um, and they're like a drug dealer. God bless them. You know, they give you a taste and then you keep coming back for more. And then they put this thing in your email. Hey, save 50 bucks, get these two and get that too. And I'm a sucker <laughs> for that every time. Uh, I shouldn't say they're like a drug dealer. That's horrible. Um, but I, I really enjoy their plugins right now. Um, I just bought um, Slate, the drum replacer, whatever it's called. The trigger. Oh, it's fantastic, isn't it? It's unbelievable. I've been I've been a slave to uh, drum uh, the Pro Tools sound replacer for years. Yep. And you know you have to go through with the missed triggers, and you know it, it takes a long time. Like if you do it right, it comes out incredible, but it's time consuming. Mm-hmm. You know, and I have friends that use Drumagog and some other things, and my buddy Floyd is the one who hit me to this one, and it was just like, wait, I can load six different samples. And I can just blend them in here, and uh, it's just—it's been a real lifesaver. It's the first and, time I've ever done drum triggering where I felt like it automatically worked correctly. You, right? You think that you're doing something wrong, or you ha- you need to be doing more, but it just works perfectly, and uh, without a lot of additional adjustments. Yeah, tweaking. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, cool, man. Well, I dig that. Um, you know, in the past, I remember just going through at a sample level and just adjusting everything by hand. Sure. One sample at a time. <laughs> yep. And the uh, problem with that is there's no dynamic. Well, you got to write the dynamics in and yep, do it. It's just yep. so much work. And it just took an incredible amount of time. That's yeah. when I had the TV on in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now how about for the, a resource for the business side of doing this? You know, people who might want to do this for a living. Um, you got books. any tips for them? Oh, QuickBooks. Great. Every day, all day long. Uh, best $200 I ever spent, a hundred and something dollars. Um, it was the first time that I could have all my invoices in the same place, knowing where the money was coming in and going out um, and really treating it like a business. Remember, at the end of the day, this isn't a hobby. You know, you want to make a little bit of money on it to be able to, to pay your mortgage, your rent, buy some f food for your family, your groceries, whatever, right? Um, you got to keep track of stuff and that's the best, most efficient way to do it. Mm. Unless you had a full-time accountant that I don't want to pay for that. I don't know about you. <laughs> any tips as far as uh, invoicing people, you know, any tricks you've learned, not tricks, but just like smart practices for how to send invoices. Um, did, did you discover that invoicing something up front and following up later is a great way? Did you find uh, very effective ways to you know, gently and, and nicely prod, remind people that the invoice was still unpaid, things like that? Yeah. Yes and no. Nobody likes to talk about money. You know, we're in a creative business where, you know, we all are afraid that, you know, once we start talking about money, it gets in the way and then it's always in the back of their mind, like, oh, he's just money hungry. But the truth is we got to take care of business. You know, um, I can't pay my car note by telling those guys, hey, I'm going to pay you what I owe you right now in 60 days, it just doesn't fly. Mm. So what I do is I just, I, I put it all out on the table in the beginning. Okay. This is what you're getting for the amount of price you're paying me. You're going to get X, Y, and Z. And all I want in return is, you know, if we're going to do, if I'm working with a, a local artist, you know, maybe it's half up front or a percentage up front and then the payment schedule, you know, uh, first payment and then before delivery of the masters. Unfortunately, if I'm working with a record company, I need to get a PO Mm -hmm. I need to make sure I have that before the session or else I'll never get paid. Uh, and there's things that you have to do to go through that. You may have to make sure your W, what are the I-9s or not I-9s, what do you call it? W-9, That that's in there, that you're in the system. Uh, and there are things that you have to follow and you have to be friendly with those people because once you yell at them once, guess what? You're going to the back of the line every <laughs> time your invoice comes up. And, uh, you know, and it's just, it, it's just working that side of the business. So maybe when you wake up in the morning, your first, while you're getting your coffee in the first 20 minutes of your day is shooting off those emails. Hey, what's up, Joe? I haven't seen that check yet. Or, Hey, make sure that, um, you look for the, uh, the mix and drop box. I want to make sure we can get this to the next level or, you know, and just doing the busy work because it has to be a business. I think that the business side and invoicing and learning how to do that stuff, just like mixing, give yourself the the grace and the space to practice it and just, you know, it's okay if you screw it up at first. Maybe don't True. screw it up with, you know, all your income. Screw it up with little bits so you can learn these things and, and dial it in as you go. I mean, you, you, we're bound to screw stuff up. It's yeah. just it's just the way it is. But the, the, the less hit you take financially on your side, the better. Yeah. Now, how about a resource for the organizational side of stuff? Have you found anything online that has been really helpful for staying organized? Um, I know at Nelly's studio, we bought some, some software that, um, was supposed to organize your studio and your flow, but it never really caught on. 
And all, all we really did was, was stay with QuickBooks for invoicing and everything was put into there. The, the bills, the, the money coming in, the money going out. And it was very uh, much kept after like that. As far as organizing my, my, my professional life, I keep a schedule. Mm-hmm. I keep a calendar um, almost to the point of a fault that if it's not on a calendar, I don't know what's happening. Yeah. Uh, and I have multiple calendars. I have a calendar from obviously my school life and then also for my studios, multiple, the ones that are here and then the one at my house. Um, when you do something in the calendar, have you found any effective ways to make sure that the other person you've agreed to do something with also has it in their calendar? Uh, I've tried and I have not found any, uh, um, just communicate a lot. Yeah, I do. You know, I'm, I'm, this next studio, I think I'm just going to do a straight Google calendar, invite everybody to it. But then at the, the flip side of that is, do I really want no people knowing my business? You know, right. at, at the same right. time, there has to be that mysterious part of your, of your thing that everybody thinks you're busy all the time so that, you know, you know, you keep up that facade. But then the flip side of that is who really cares? You know what I mean? Yeah, right. So hopefully you are busy all the time. I am. And that's the problem. So I need all these calendars, but yeah. I just haven't found a great one. If you have a, an idea, I'd love to hear it. Um, well, there's actually one that I use for the podcast, uh, which you used yourself. It's called Calendly. That uh, was actually pretty, really amazing. I, uh, yeah. I got the reminders and all that stuff. Yeah. That's a pretty cool way to do it. I haven't put it for the studio yet, but I, I definitely would like to. And it will let somebody schedule an appointment, and then afterwards it'll send reminder emails leading up to it so you can make sure they have all the right info. Yeah, the reminder emails were fantastic, by the way. All right, well, thank you. Well, so um, there is one bit of organization. I, I noticed on your credits, there was something about organizing and maintaining all of the hard drives for for Nelly and for the studio. What tips do you have for rock stars about keeping your digital files organized, backed up, duplicated, all that kind of stuff? I have quite a bit to say about that. If you don't have multiple versions of it, it doesn't exist. Plain and simple. If you have one hard drive at your studio, you might as well just take it and throw it against the wall right now because it doesn't (laughs) exist. Uh, You need a backup and you have to be religious about a backup. And there's some great softwares out there where you literally, you know, turn on your, um, your computer and it's backing up to your backup drive. It tells you what files aren't there and it does it. Um, I've gotten away from using those as much because I've been a little bit more my own studio. So I'm just constantly throwing stuff to my, my backup drive. Mm-hmm. Um, but organizational skills, very simple. I treat every session exactly the same. Now I'm not talking about the way I record or mix or whatever, my hierarchy. There's a session folder of the band's name inside that folder, are all the different songs inside each song is three things. Sorry, four things. You have your audio files, you have your Pro Tools session. Um, we don't have fade files anymore. We have um, text that other file, whatever yeah, it is. It's like movie fo- folders right? or some video. Yeah. But then I have these two other folders that I create. I create an old session folder mm-hmm. and an old mix folder, or I call it an old bounce, or whatever I call it. But it's old mix and old session, but it's labeled with that name of that song. Now, within that are any old versions of that song. So if I'm, if I'm working... Say I'm doing um, the song called The View, right? So it'll be View 1.0. Now, I start tomorrow, save session, um, save session as The View 1.1. It's a new day. Mm -hmm. 1.0 goes inside the old session folder. Um, 
This way I can always get back quickly and easily and efficiently to where I was. Yeah. Now, if I don't open up that band song for six months, when I open it up, I know exactly where I left off at. I left off at view 1.1 and typically there'll be a bounce in there of that night's work. So if someone says, hey, can you send me the, uh, the rough mix from the other night? Sure. I don't have to go searching. I don't have to check by name and by date and by any of that stuff. So every session is set up the exact same way for very quick, um, efficient way to to interrogate each one and to know where it is. Because I, I, I learned that when we're doing some of these Nelly records where we would do 50 or 60 songs that would be the, the basis of an album that would, would whittle down. And if I didn't know instantly, hey, go to this song. And I'd go there, oh, which version? You know, are you waiting for me again? And, and I, I don't ever want to be waited on. Waited on, waited by. You know what right, I'm talking right, about. Right, right, waited on, yeah. So um, another thing that I've discovered that was important is when you do a mix or a rough of a session, take that session that just printed that mix and put it in a folder. And the reason for that is because if you come back later and you realize that that rough sounded amazing and there was something really special about it, you want to be able to open that session exactly where it was left off. You know, you might have somebody says, oh, that was perfect if we could just adjust the vocal a little bit or the bass or something like that. Yep, and I try to, so what I do is I try to label the rough the name of the session. Yeah. So if it's the view 1.0, the view 1.0, uh, you know, it, today would be 11, 1, 16. Yeah. And then here's another little trick that I learned from a friend of mine who's actually a, a writer. So he works for a newspaper. He, when I, when you add a date to something, don't even put in a slash or a dash, just put what, what's today? It's 11, 1, 16. So it would be 1, 1, you know, 0, 1, 1, 6. And just that that batch of numbers equals the date. And yep. then the computers won't get confused later and think it's a file tree or some other management that can't handle the dash or the slash. That's a, that's a really good idea. It's yeah. almost like the old uh, marking of an old Fender Telecaster or Stratocaster. It was how they dated it and stuff like that. Yeah. So now, rock stars, you know when we recorded this, even though you're hearing it later. Cool. <laughs> we've given away. We've pulled back the veil, and now you know all our secrets. All right. So now um, we've got a couple more questions, and then we're all done. But this one is hypothetical. Actually, both both the next ones are hypothetical. This is one that says, um, if you had to start all over again, you know, which you're kind of mm -hmm. doing with the new studio, but if you needed a simple setup to record, you were in a strange place where you didn't know anybody yet. And you needed to find people to make music and make records with, and you needed to make ends meet while you did it so you could survive and eat. What what sort of advice would you give somebody who's in that situation now? Uh, I guess I would start backwards. I'd go meet the people first. I'd go out to, to clubs. I'd go out to um, events. I'd go to where the music's being made. Um, meet bands, talk to them, you know, introduce myself, try to get... I guess infiltrate um, a scene and let people know that I'm in town and I'm, I'm I'd love to work with you guys. Now, you know people don't want to just jump on your bandwagon right away and 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 give you a shot. So maybe you know get friendly with some of the other studio owners in town. So if I didn't have the money to to buy a simple setup, you know, well, how much is it to me to rent your room? Oh, 20 bucks an hour. All right, it's the cost of doing business. You know, maybe I'll take less money in the front end to build a relationship with this guy that, you know, I can get introduced to more clients. Like I don't want to just slingshot off of him to get people, but it's a good way to get uh, into the, the, I guess, network of, of bands, of managers, of people a little bit quicker. And for a simple setup, you know, uh, uh, a nice cheap mic, 
I mean, let's face it, I can go to Guitar Center every day of the week and buy a beautiful Audio Technica, you know, 40, 30, 40, well, 40, 40 is a little more expensive. Um, a decent preamp, um, an M box, and, and I'm off and running, mm-hmm. you know, um, and not for a lot of money. And nowadays, there's, there's so many different, you know, uh, mics in that price point of, of $200 that, you know, you just, the sky's the limit. I mean, right now I'm talking into a, what, a $300 microphone? Yeah. I mean, granted, the preamp's probably a little oh, more Oh, yeah. Tell us about your mic, man. <laughs> what, what mic are you using? Uh, I'm using a beautiful SM7B. And and tell us once again, you told me a little bit before this interview about how you discovered that mic and, and realized that it was a cool mic to use. Yeah. So, you know, it's been, you know, a microphone you see all, always in a, an announcer's booth. And the polar pattern, I want to say it's hypercardioid. So it's really picking up what the singer or the talking person, like right now, person talking, the interviewee. That's you. You're the talking yep. person. Um, is saying, and it's not as much of the room tone and room noise. So a friend of mine was in the studio and set one up and was just blown away by that. How everybody was kind of talking and the music was a little louder and the rear rejection and, and it was just incredible. So that kind of opened up the door to this microphone. And then I started seeing it everywhere. Michael Jackson used it on Thriller, the story goes. And then, um, you know, a lot of rock and roll singles will use it in the studio because of the, the, the character of its mic, of, of the, the sound. You know, it's yeah. very similar to a stage microphone, like an SM7. It's almost you a know. self-compressing mic. It already sounds yeah. sort of compressed and smoothed out in a nice way. Yep. Well, so now, but I, I remember when you said your friend came and you were doing a session, it was a, a hip-hop session, wasn't it? And there was something, weren't you recording in the control room? Uh, he was actually recording in the control room. And he had this, the, this, the artist didn't want to wear headphones. Uh, he wanted to listen to the speakers. And he just, this is what he grabbed and uh, put it up in the nice, it was the speakers weren't even out of phase. They were just kind of like in the null part of the mic and it was pretty loud and it, it worked out great. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. So that I think is the real key takeaway is that you n- need that rejection because the speakers might be cranking in the room, you know, if you want to sing like that. And there's, uh, how, what kind of sessions have you done where having a mic and a vocal take, you know, an album take go down in the control room with speakers has been the way to go? Um. It wasn't a final take, but it was a reference take. I did one about a week ago and I had this band and I wanted the separation on the guitars. So instead of putting a singer in the vocal booth, I put the guitars in there facing away from each other so I could get you know, the separation on the, the two amps. And I had him in the control room um, and I had it loud. I mean, like stupidly loud, like they were playing a concert. In a, so I had the bass player going direct and also his amp going through the, the wall and the two guitar players and, and the other amps in the wall, but everybody was in the control with me. And uh, the singer was singing on an SM7B. And when I say that it was cranked, like it was, it was, it was, you know, rock and roll volume and uh, no, no feedback. And, you know, you play back and you hear, you hear some of the music, but it's not like if you had an, uh, a 47 tube microphone in the control right, room, where right. it, you know what I mean? It's just, it's going to be useless. Um, and, you know, the other remarkable thing about having music bleed onto another mic as you record in the control room or even overdub is, hey, guess what? It's the same song. Yeah. Sometimes that actually can be a good <laughs> thing. 
Well, cool. So, all right. Now, um, here's the very last question. We've got, we're going to take the studio way back machine here. Uh, you already talked about future Carl. We're going to go meet past Carl. So if today's Carl could go back and meet early Carl, I guess you're just about to, uh, you're just, you're in your third year at, at UMass Lowell. <laughs> you haven't quite <laughs> quit yet, but you've, you've got an idea and you think you want to be a rock star of the recording studio. Go back and give yourself one piece of advice for the single most important thing that young Carl should know to become a recording studio rock star himself. So that's an interesting question. You know, what if you could do, tell yourself, or what could you tell yourself if you could go back in time? You know, obviously, maybe not cut your hair that way, but... Um, Eat better. Right? <laughs> Don't smoke. But what I would tell myself professionally is... Um, Stop thinking you're not good enough. It's a crazy thing to say, right? But in my early part of my career, I always felt like I didn't belong. Like I thought someone was going to walk in, especially in the early days in New York City, and walk in and go, what are you doing at the console? Get out. You, you, know, you don't belong here. You're not good enough. And, you know, I, I think in the early part of any career, I don't care if it's recording or if you're a, a surgeon or whatever, a lawyer, we always second guess our ability in the beginning because we don't have the experience to show us that we belong and that we can do the job. So I guess the advice I would give myself is like, don't beat yourself up. You do belong. Just work hard and, and just follow, follow your instinct. You got this. You got this. Exactly. Nice, man. Well, you know, you mentioned being a surgeon. In, in that case, you might want to really keep double checking a lot along the way. <laughs> Don't get too <laughs> overconfident too quickly. But I, I love hearing that. And I remember feeling a lot of the same way. And I think that's probably along the lines of the advice I would give myself is just go back and just remind me to believe in myself. Like whatever I bring to the table is probably the best thing I'm ever going to be able to bring to the table. Right. You know, so I appreciate that, man. Carl, thank you so much for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars. You completely rock. I know you haven't thought about, um, you know, the right terminology oh, for how to rock in hip hop, but I'm sure it'll come to you later. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's great to hang out with you, man. Thank you so much uh, my for pleasure. sharing all your stories and, and your time and sorting out how to make Skype work and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we learned something tonight, didn't we? All right. Let our rock stars know how they can learn more about you, follow you and, uh, and get in touch with you if they need to or whatever. Sure thing. Um, I just relaunched my website, so it's kind of on its beginning stages. So there's some, it's a work in progress, should I say, but it's very simple. CarlNapa.com, C-A-R-L-N-A-P-P-A.com. I am on Instagram. I always put up stupid pictures. I wish I knew my uh, Instagram name. I think it's just Carl Napa. It might be. I think it is. I think I changed it. I had something sillier before. And then, um, you know, just email is just Carl.Napa. Uh, not .com, uh, at Gmail. I switched it. Okay, cool, cool. And, uh, you know, anybody who has questions, just, you know, shoot an email. Nice, not, man. Uh, not the end of the world here. So, Carl, I'm going to invite you right now live on the show and you two rock stars listening to come join our Facebook group, uh, facebook.com slash groups slash recording studio rock stars. And we've got a private group there where we can all collaborate, chit chat, ask questions, answer questions. And Carl, if you please come join us, it'd be awesome to have you in there. And anybody just, just tag Carl and give him a shout out and say hello right there. Thanks so much. All right, dude. Well, we'll see you around the studio. And uh, in the meantime, go enjoy some St. Louis, I guess, you know, what's, I know, what's, right? what's cool right now in St. Louis? 
uh, my new studio that opens up December 15th. Awesome, dude. Awesome. <laughs> That's going to be right about the time this podcast comes out. It's perfect. All right, dude. Cheers, man. We'll see you around. All right. You too. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RSRockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.